Dispatch Boys. Overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of Badge Boys, the show where two cops talk to the community. I'm retired silent witness sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Schechterly. And we have such a great show. We have not just a SWAT officer, SWAT officer extraordinaire. So amazing. He even wrote a book. I can't wait to talk to him about that called Taming the Serpent, Michael Malpass. And so intriguing is his story that we're going to hold on to him past the guest segment into Cop Talk because it's just that fascinating and riveting. Then we'll go to our last segment, which will be the heroic headlines, stupid suspects, and then my favorite inspirational message from our very own Jason Sheckley. So stay tuned, stay informed, and most of all, you'll be entertained. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the moment. moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association in this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back to Bad Boys, everybody. I am super excited on a lot of levels today. Very personal, very emotional. And the entire reason, Darren, that you and I started this show about changing the dialogue, making law enforcement better, making the community better. Our guest today, Michael Malpass, uh, has written a book, Taming the Serpent, and we are going to talk about that at great length and give him an opportunity to share why he wrote this book, what is in this book, and explain some things that uh, I found when reading it. It's not only beneficial to law enforcement, but I was able to make a lot of personal connections with just what you go through in life. And I have a lot of questions for our guests. But for a little bit of background, uh, I can tell all of you, I have known Mike for 19 Teen years, I believe now. Wow. And uh, yeah, he was one of the officers that I got to meet and get mentored by a little bit when I was brand new and a rookie. He was working at the time with uh, an absolute phenomenal partner named Michael Yatsko that uh, I have uh, probably my greatest funny memory as a patrol officer had to do with Mike Yatsko. Um, and I've told my friends this over the years. I've told the recruits at the academy that I teach with if you put me in any situation, anywhere in this country, life or death, the, the pure good versus evil, and you said you can have one guy with you, wouldn't even have to think I would take Mike Malpass uh, on that call with me. He is uh, the most squared away, toughest police officer that I've ever met. However, he's also very kind and very humble. 
and a big old teddy bear. So a little bit of background, Mike Malpass has been in law enforcement for over 24 years. He started in the great state of Ohio, the heart of it all, as we like to refer to it. He has been a beat cop, a tactical training officer, a SWAT officer. He's currently an advanced training officer with the Phoenix Police Department. During his entire career, he has been teaching defensive tactics for law enforcement. For over 35 years, he has been studying fighting systems. The law enforcement training programs he has designed include ground survival, reference retention, de-escalation, the optimized brain, compassionate restraint, close quarter crisis, and SWAT entry defensive tactics. And Mike Malpass is recognized by the federal courts as a subject matter expert on police use of force, federal courts. Welcome, Mike Malpass, author of Training the Serpent. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing pretty good, but uh, after that introduction right there, I got to... <laughs> I've been fired up all morning, listen, to get you in the studio to see you again. I only get to see you once in a while down at the Academy. So we're going to start uh, with one of the things that means the most to me that I, uh, I talk to people about all the time. I want to know, and I would hope uh, that you are happy to share with us how did this even start? Why did you put your name on the application in the very beginning? I knew as a small child that I wanted to be a police officer, but to be perfectly honest, when I was a kid, it was the John Wayne, I wanted to be a U.S. Marshal. And if, if I lost an eye and had to wear an eye patch, that was going to be a fantastic. Cogburn. Yeah, was be, that would be fine with me. I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. But then as I started to get older, I realized they didn't have horses anymore. And uh, so... I decided I'd modernize a little bit and that uh, the police officer was probably going to be for me. I like the idea of being a police officer. I like the idea of helping people. And I also like the idea of um, somebody's got to do it. So why not, why not me? Would you say it's part of your DNA, helping people, community? Yeah, it's kind of the way I was raised. So, uh, yeah, as, as long as I can remember, it's always been if you can help, you should. And if you don't, shame on you. So, uh, it kind of, uh, it's kind of the way I was raised, so being a cop was easy after that. Well, outside of the constant gray skies and some funky weather in Ohio, what brought you from, what, what department did you work for in Ohio? I worked for uh, the Dublin Police Department, okay. Dub Dublin, Ohio, beautiful little town yeah. outside of Columbus. Yeah, and what, what made you walk away from that department, and uh, did, did, did you know you wanted to come to Phoenix, or were you looking at other places in the country? I didn't know Phoenix, um, per se, I knew that Dublin, while it is a beautiful town and there's amazing people there, I wanted some big city experience, and more importantly, I wanted big city SWAT experience. So uh, after a couple of years on the job there, I started looking for other opportunities, and then that was uh, in 95, Phoenix was doing that massive hiring, and I got involved in that massive hiring there, and then started the, uh, the trek out here from Ohio. Okay. If you would take us through, so, I mean, you're young, you start in Dublin, Ohio. You got your the job you want. You're serving the community. You're protecting all that great and wonderful stuff that we all know. You make the transition out here. Fill in the gaps for us that what what occurred throughout your career, what moments in time, what memories do you have? How did you progress to where you need to learn more about the the human brain, especially how it applies to law enforcement and all the way up to 2019 here you are you have written a book that again we're going to talk a lot about this book there are no other books out there like this it is 
remarkable what you have written and what you have done for the future of law enforcement. So I'd, I'd love to know how, what's the progression of that? How do you get to where you're at today? Well, it, it started with, once again, sometimes you feel like you've, you're born under a, a lucky sign. I come to Phoenix, and uh, in the academy, I meet one of the greatest cops I've ever, I've ever known, have the privilege to know, John White. Awesome. Uh, one of the best cops. Yeah. There, he, there may be some as good, but there's none better. Yeah. Um, he convinces me, you know, hey, you should come to Central City Precinct. I go to Central City Precinct, and then I'm given an amazing FTO, Jason Jockey who is a, a great, awesome cop, great guy. He's now a sergeant on our SWAT team. Uh, and then not long after that, I'm, I'm partnered with Mike Yatsko and along with John White, the two greatest cops I've ever had the privilege to know, not just because of what they could do when, um, when it was violent and rough, but how decent and just amazing human beings they are away from the job, on the job, how many people in the community still to this day a couple of years ago when I was on the SWAT team, we would be serving a warrant in either the, uh, the Garfield area or uh, down in the 23 beat, and people would come out and go, hey, do you know RoboCop? Do you know John White? And I'd be like, of course I know John White. <laughs> and, they, and they'd say, how is he? i go, oh, he's a lieutenant now. And they're like, lieutenant, wow. And then they would tell you a story, and the story was usually John arrested one of their relatives but made the promise that when he did that, he would check on the family, and to his word. I mean, he's one of those just amazing human beings. Mike Yatsko, same thing. Mike Yatsko is the same guy who could arrest you on a Tuesday and help you find a job on a Wednesday. Uh, they're just amazing cops. So I've been exposed to these amazing cops who show you how to be a beat cop, not how to be, you know, just let's go all over the city and answer the radio, how to focus on an area and say, you know what, I'm going to make this area my own, and I'm the people in here, I'm responsible for the people, so I'm going to get to know them. Um, to, to be exposed to two officers like that and then just the other amazing people uh, like Jason Jockey and, and some of the other officers in Central City Precinct at the time, uh, it was amazing. So that starts it. Um, getting into the brain stuff, if you're going to put yourself out there, you're going to be making a lot of decisions and you're going to start trying to figure out ways of uh, trying to make smarter, better decisions in compressed time frames. And uh, one of the ways, of, <laughs> you, you have three ways of learning. This is, a, uh, it's, a, it's not an exact quote, but Confucius, Confucius said there's three ways of learning. Um, the first way is uh, through thought. You, you think your way through it, and it's the noblest version because you're spending a lot of time working your way through this. The second way is to mimic, which is the easiest. The third way is through experience, which is often the bitterest. And that was kind of, and it's always rolled around in my mind, especially the bitterest part. Because we used to tell cops, and, and sometimes still do, that, hey, once you do about seven years on this job, you're going to have a pretty good handle on it. And once you do seven years, you know, if you survive, you're going to start making pretty good decisions. Things are going to go well. well. It's like, okay, well, how do I do that? And they're like, well, that, that's the part we don't really know. So the whole goal was, well, how do I start looking into that then? What can we do? Well, I used to be a fighter before I became a cop, and I fought in boxing, kickboxing, mixed martial arts. So I knew I was taking a lot of shots to the head growing up. I started young and was going pretty late with taking hits to the head. Was a little bit worried about cognitive decline. Started looking into that a little bit. And while looking into that, that's where a lot of the decision-making stuff started coming up. And it was like uh, these ideas of what's peak performance, um, how do you make these smart decisions. And I got lucky and I read a book called The Rise of Superman, which is about peak performance flow states. And there was a bunch of different names mentioned in the book. I started picking up those books, and I got very lucky and found that one of the neuroscientists that was mentioned in that book lives in Mesa, 
and I started contacting him. So between the gathering of all this information, this information was meant to teach me how to not have cognitive decline. And then it was a collection of data to try to convince the department to do a neuroscience study. And in the process of collecting all this data to write a quick report about how I'm going to, you know, uh, how, how we should start studying the brain and, and bring in a neuroscience, I started adding more and more data. And then next thing you know, there was enough stuff there where my dad was like, hey, you know what, you should put this down and maybe write a book. So going back to, yeah, you did a, you did a lot of fighting. Obviously, something I, I can't even imagine getting in the ring with somebody and doing the, the hand-to-hand thing. And I know you, you're being humble, but you were very, very good at it. And then, I don't remember the date, but it was a pretty long time ago, uh, not long after I was uh, uh, a new officer. You and Mike Yatsko were involved in a, a deadly force incident. Yes. And... A lot of times when that happens, an officer may, it, it can greatly change them. Uh, they might want a desk job. They might end up saying, you know, law enforcement is now not for me. Taking a life, having to use your gun in the line of duty is not what you hear about on TV. It's not great and wonderful. It's incredibly horrible. Did, was that kind of, was your first deadly use of force? I know you've been in several since then as a SWAT member, but did, did you, was there a connection with what you had been through in your fighting days, and then you went through that, and you wanted to better yourself and better your response to the, the next calls? Yeah. It, it, so it's, when, you, when you go to explain it, sometimes it sounds a little bit odd. But, and this is what the, the, the previous experience, or in, in my case, the fight training did for me. While this event is happening, there isn't a lot of time for excessive emotion. Um, if you let excessive emotion come into play when the violence is on, your performance is going to go down. But the effects afterwards, and this is the part that people, including myself at the time, didn't understand, is you think you're okay. You think everything's fine. You know, I did my job. No big deal. It's a good shoot. You know, from the law's perspective, it's a horrible thing to have to do. Don't get me wrong. But I did my job. I did what had to be done. And then you move on. But what you don't realize, and it takes a little while to realize it, is the changes that you don't see that everybody else sees. Because all of a sudden you're in in public and you're a little bit more paranoid. You're constantly looking around. You're more worried about your children in public. You have to have your back to the wall. And when you're in those those states, someone drops a plate next to you and you bounce in your chair and you're half going for your gun. And you start to realize, well, wait a minute, man, they're so... There must be this baseline that I'm supposed to be in, and obviously I have drifted from that baseline, not to the point where it's affecting work, not to the point where it's affecting my, my life, but obviously there are these spikes, and if I'm off my baseline, that was when I really started looking into, so what is this? You know, what, what, what happens after this? And is, is, is it possible that people just aren't affected by it? And no, the answer is we're all affected by it. We just sometimes don't recognize it. And you don't recognize it in some, t- in some cases until you've said something horrible to someone you love, until you've done something horrible. <laughs> um, in my case, it was more of a, I zoned out. I, I would zone out and, and, and kind of just want to be alone. Mm-hmm. And, but it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a sense of, uh, oh, I did something horrible. It was more just, a, I don't understand this deviation from my normal self. I don't understand the anxiousness. I don't understand that. When I was in a shooting... Uh, 
about this time you came on, mine was in 95, it was a uh, prolific bank robber. And I went into that cop mode, you know, the training mode. Uh, I, I felt my tactics were good. Uh, everything was, you know, just by the numbers until he didn't go down. I was shooting him. He didn't go down. All of a sudden, it just wrapped my world around. And I went from, you know, I was able to re- regain posure. I was able to sadly take, try for a headshot and end the, the conflict. Um, but I remember that unraveling where I'm in the zone. Did, was there anything like that with any of your shootings in terms of when the, the dust settles where um, that, that kind of panic could end? Or were you in good, I hate to use the word cop mode, but you're in solid training mode? For me, it's always been, uh, the, the hardest part for me has always been, I have no problem going up. I, I have no problem, it's violent, I can deal with that. No problem. It's horrific. I can deal with that. Um, the number of times I've had to do it, unfortunately, <laughs> it, it more is, than it, anyone should. It Absolutely. is. It is what it is. But the, the hardest part for me has always been: I know I need to call my wife before the news pops, and I need to let her know that I'm okay. But as soon as you, as soon as you, you can't think about family while you're in the violence. You can't do it because you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to get in your own way. You're in that zone. But now all of a sudden, as soon as you say something human, like I got to call my wife, then all of a sudden it's like, well, wow, how do I frame this? And now you're trying to think of the words, how do I tell my wife that I just took the life of a human being? And that's when it really starts to brew in you. And it's real hard to keep it together then because you, you, know, you, you don't want to come across as a robot to your wife. You, you want to let her know, hey, I'm okay, but, holy cow, this was, this was a little crazy, you know? I remember the first time when the uh, homicide uh, lieutenant came in and informed me that my suspect, in this case, uh, is dead. It had a profound effect on me immediately. Did that happen to you, or was it that later effect? Um, you know, I, this probably doesn't sound very good, but I, I knew right away in all of them that the person was gone. So, no, it sounds perfectly understandable. So it was almost like, well, there it is. Yeah. This is, this is it is what it is. You yeah. know? And now it's just, uh, what's next? You know? There's a quote. Uh, first of all, this book, Taming the Serpent, I was very curious when uh, I started to read it because I was, like most people, it's a great title, and I'm like, what the heck does Taming the Serpent mean? And there's a quote in the book, and it says, the serpent can be trained to work for us because the serpent that lives within us does not have to be our enemy. The one within us is designed to steer us toward reward and away from risk. Can you expand on that? Because, Mike, reading this book, i got, I got to tell you, I haven't been a cop in a long time. I retired in 2006, and I related to it as a police officer. I was never in a deadly force incident. I was never even a patrol officer long enough to be in too many crazy situations but i related to this just in life in overcoming my adversity on a longer term scale you know 12 15 years a lot of what the book talks about on the escalation de-escalation can happen within seconds or or minutes but that's it's why you titled the book that what what are you relating to with how it's naturally it the term serpent sounds a little rough right it does but you're relating it that it's geared toward re- reward and away from risk. So would you please explain that? Yeah. 
originally we also considered calling it Taming the Dragon, because mm-hmm. dragon's a lot cooler than serpent <laughs> to some people. But the, 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 so, and again, this is an oversimplification, because number one, I'm not that smart of a guy, and number two, I'm really worried about how many hits I've taken to the head. So <laughs> we, we look at the brain for the purposes of the discussion and, and for the purposes of our training as a split processing system. And this is a, um, so there's the cognitive you, that's the prefrontal cortex that sits right above your eyes. That's the thinking part of you. That's the conscious you. Now, what we think is that we use our whole brain all the time and that the conscious us is the biggest portion of the brain, but the conscious part of us is the smallest portion of the brain. That three pounds of dark matter behind our, uh, you know, behind our eyes or above our eyes uh, and in our heads is um, working a lot of subconscious processing there is a lot going on in the background that you do not you're not privy to a lot of the decisions you make today are based on subconscious drives that have been happening since you were a kid we we believe we have all this control over every decision we make and we only have control over a very small portion of the decisions we make because if you think about it if you had to think about everything all at once then right now you would be thinking about your arm leaning on the table, your butt sitting in the chair, your foot on the floor, the air moving through the room, and it would overwhelm you. So the subconscious system takes care of a lot of that by just going, everything's normal, there's no deviation from normal, everything looks the way it's supposed to look, we're good. The emotional brain now is the bigger portion of the brain. This is the the subconscious, subconscious portion of the brain. We used to think that emotions exist because we're higher human beings and emotions because that's what loving people do. They have emotions. Emotions really exist to map memories. So your emotional system, when you feel something, is leveraging that information, storing it, and then in the future it's going to give you a highest, like a, a, a bias, a hunch about risk and reward. We have an explicit system, that's our thinking, conscious system. We have an implicit system, which is the subconscious system, the emotional system. So when you hear a word like implicit bias, which is kind of one of the new trending words, implicit, subconscious, bias, hunch about risk-reward, your emotional brain is an implicit bias system. And without that system, we wouldn't be able to make a lot of decisions every day. You could do a math problem without your emotional system, right. but you, wouldn't, you couldn't decide whether to put on a coat, whether to eat, whether to have sex. You couldn't make up your mind what to do without the emotional system leveraging those information and giving you risk-reward right. uh, biases. All right, everybody, that, uh, we're going to wrap up this first segment, but our second segment, which is always Darren and I's uh, favorite one, is uh, Cop Talk, where we talk about hot topics and Mike is definitely the hot topic, so we are going to ask him to stick around. I would ask everybody to come back. Um, but before we go to that, Mike, uh, just real quick, let's get started on uh, when does the book officially come out? It comes out um, Monday, the 22nd is the delivery date. It's and available for pre-order right now. It is on what platform? On Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Outstanding. Amazon and Barnes & Noble. All right, everybody, we will be right back with uh, some more great conversations with Mike Malpass. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. 
Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. I'll never forget, never forget that moment. As long as, as, I, live. Long as I live. My first call ever as a member of the National Guard. When we got to the armory, they briefed us on the wildfires. They were getting dangerously close to homes. Helicopters were going out to drop water on the fires. Guys in the unit were preparing for fire fighting with local fire crews. At that moment, I got my first taste of just how important the Guard is to my community. See how the Guard can be an important part of your life at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back to Badge Boys, everybody, in our continued discussion with Mike Malpass, author of Taming the Serpent. And I can't listen. For all of you out there who are law enforcement, you have to read this book. It will make you better. If you want to be a cop, you got to read this book. If you're related to a cop, you got to read this book. If you don't like cops, you got to read this book and understand. And again, for people like me, Rob, and I know you can relate to this, Darren, with what you've gone through in the past with the loss of your son, this, the, what Mike is covering is really about life and adversity, whether it be immediate, whether it be long-term. But for this segment, we are going to talk about uh, cop talk. And there's a couple things in this book that um, are very meaningful to me, and I definitely want to hear your take on it. So on a personal note, the first story I want to get into, uh, I will tell all of you listeners out there, I was reading this book, enjoying it, learning so much. It's on the transcript or the manuscript I got, there's 299 pages. And again, I'm just cruising through it, taking down notes. And all of a sudden I get to page 280 and Mike had written a segment about me and I immediately started crying. I text one of my best friends and I'm like, hey, a little bit of notice would have been nice, you ass. And (laughs) he informed me that he didn't even realize it. Uh, So I want to publicly thank you for that, Mike. But the next story... I was even more moved by because it is my personal favorite story in the 20 years that I've been around the Phoenix Police Department. And it involves an officer named Rob Cytek. Rob, one night, uh, I believe it was around April of 2002, pulled over, unknowing to him, a carjack suspect. It had not been put in the system yet. He had a partner. Rob was the first one out, got into a uh, minor foot chase, Close quarter combat, guy pulled out a gun, he shot Rob four times, two under his vest and uh, two in the legs and devastating injury. Rob should have bled out and died within minutes. He survived. We could go into great details about what uh, the same doctors that saved me saved Rob and they weren't, they, there wasn't even time to hook up the IVs to get blood into him. They were opening his chest and squirting bags of blood. I think he went through over 140 units. Imagine that. 140 units of blood in one night to survive this. What I want to talk to you about, Mike, this is what gets me. Rob had a partner that night, David Twing, one of the greatest cops that I know. Mm -hmm. Here is a police officer faced with an incredible set of circumstances where there really is no wrong answer. He gets to his partner and his partner is dying. He's been shot and he is He is going to die. Do you stay with your partner and comfort him and love him? Promise you're going to 
talk to his family and let them know? Or do you chase the worst of the worst who just basically killed one of our police officers? That night, to Officer Thwing's credit, he decided to chase the suspect, and he took care of business. He shot and killed the suspect, and then he returned to his partner. Uh, again, this is my, the, the totality of this call to this day. It gets me very emotional. It's my favorite story. But what you wrote in the book, this epitomizes what you're talking about and what David had to face that night. Can you expand on what you, what you did you talk to him after? What did you learn from that about what he went through? You know, I've talked to him a few times, but not, not specifically an interview for the book. Um, in the book, we were, and again, it's, it's, it, a lot of people sometimes don't want to review critical incidents because they think you're being critical. You think you're putting a cop down. You think you're saying something horrible about what a cop did. Um, so it was, it was touch and go in some of the issues of the book because I was like, yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't want people to feel bad, but I also want people to learn. So one of the issues that came up, and obviously um, Yatsko and I were at, uh, we were eating at Central City Precinct when that call came out. So you hear the tones, and um, there's something, you hear those tones, and it, immediately your heart spikes 35 beats per minute. Yeah. And now you're going, all right, now give us the info, give us the info. You hear where it happens, and now you're in there, and you're trying to negotiate traffic. You also want to get there. One of the great lessons from that one was that if you can't get there safely, then you can't help. And we had accidents with officers at two different intersections on the way to help an officer down. And it's one of those lessons you have to hammer home that you can't help unless you can get there. And, and that was one of the things that sticks with me is how many cops never made it to the scene yeah. and were close because it was just a little bit too over-emotional, too much emotional overload. And what happens is, and, and I've, we've all seen it happen, I guess we could probably all tell a story of when we've seen an officer who's lost it. It's just too much emotion. And when that happens, it's not our best performance. We're not going to get our best performance. Now, go to the other side at what David's going through. He has a quick decision to make, and most of the time we teach first aid begins when the gunfight's over. I'm responsible for what that guy does now that we've made contact with him. And if he goes and kills an innocent person, it's going to be very hard for me to forgive myself. Mm -hmm. so the, but, but now he's making these decisions so quick uh, that a lot of them are subconscious decisions. It's everything he did before to prepare himself for that event that matters. It's not something you just show up to one of these events and like magic, the answer comes to you. It's everything you did before that prepares for it. And were you prepared for it? Right. Um, the, the amazing part of that story is I remember being in the hospital and I remember them cracking his chest. They had to do it so fast. And then you see the nurse jump up on the gurney and to the elbows, her hands disappear in his chest. And you're like, oh my God, this just got real, man. And now she's squeezing his heart as they're rolling him into the emergency room. And then the next thing, the doctors come out and they said, you know, don't get your hopes up. Uh, and then they would come out and tell us transfusion this, transfusion that, don't get your hopes up. But then the next day, he's, he's, he's still going. And, hey, okay, maybe there's a chance here. Maybe there's a chance here. It's the, those moments, they'll, they'll stick with me forever, including the night of, uh, of your accident. The same, man, you just go in and you're like, whoa. The reality hits and you're like, how do you come back from this? 
And let uh, and Rob is back to work now. He's one of the yeah. greatest guys. I mean, he's another one of those guys. When you're in his presence, it's just like you, it makes you um, a better human being. And you, you also talked about PTSD. And when you when you go from like you shared my story in your book, and then you talk about Rob Sitek, you talk about Julie Warniak, who I had the pleasure of just speaking to her on the phone just three weeks ago to talk about, and what she went through uh, is absolutely amazing. But you talk a lot about PTSD, and from my point of view, uh, I was in the line of duty. I was on my way to a call, but at the end of the day, I was in a car accident. I wasn't targeted. I wasn't at the call. I wasn't sitting in an intersection, and I got ran into. So I was lucky enough in some ways to not face what people know as the generic side of, of PTSD. Can you go into what you've learned more about when it comes to like Rob Sitek, who was faced with a guy who said, you're not going home tonight. David, who was faced with my partner's dying and I've got to go get this, this guy on top of all the, the things that you've been through. So one way, a great way of looking at it, and, and, and with the research that I've done and then talk to other people, I am in full agreement, and I just forgot his name, and I apologize, but again, I get hit in the head a lot. Um, <laughs> if you look on Netflix, there is a, uh, um, there's a documentary called Medal of Honor on Netflix, and there was uh, a guy in Afghanistan, I just forgot his name, and I feel bad for it. I hope it comes to me. Uh, but watch that. By, it's an incredible, Medal of Honor is an incredible um, uh, um, documentary. But he said, and I agree with him 100%, it struck a chord with me when I heard him say it, is we have to get rid of the D. It is post-traumatic stress. It is not a disorder. There is no disorder to this. It's just post-traumatic stress. We all go through varying levels of post-traumatic stress. It, it could be a divorce. It could be a death in the family. It doesn't necessarily have to be a cop. The, the thing that we forget as law enforcement is we used to tell people, hey, put it in a box. It was a lot of the Vietnam guys who would say it. Hey, just lock it down in a box. And it turns out that that is actually horrible advice. They didn't mean, it the wasn't worst. that they, yeah, they didn't mean anything bad by it. It wasn't like, you know, there's nothing nefarious about it. But it turns out that's horrible advice because there are scientific studies now that show that the simple labeling of an emotion brings cognition online and suppresses emotion. This is the greatest part about what I've learned your emotional brain and your conscious brain, they're fighting for blood flow. And the blood goes where the action is. So if the emotional system is overspiked, too much blood flow is going to go in that direction. And it's going to affect your decision-making process. If you can find your balance point, and everybody has a slightly different balance point. Some people aren't emotional enough. Some people think too much. And then some people don't think enough. So we all have our own unique balance point. What we, what we fail to recognize is how far we can deviate from that balance point before we even have any noticeable symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And, and that's where sometimes I think you watch like a YouTube video of a cop and you're like, well, he's not really performing well. My, my first question is, what, was, what were the nine calls before that? Because when you show up for work and, you know, there's a call, hey, your, your son's principal wants to talk to you. Not that mine did, but just, you know, just an example here. Your son's principal wants to talk to you. Hey, you're behind on the bills. Um, hey, hey, you know, your wife says, check the schedule. Let's get a vacation going. Let's make sure we've got that going. And you're feeling a little bit stressed. You're trying to get out the door. Now you get to work. The boss says, hey, there's 15 calls holding. We need to get out there. Your first call out of this shoot is just a drunk guy who's being kind of an ass. 
you deal with it. The second call out is shoot is something so horrific done to a child that you don't know that you can wrap your head around it. But then you clear that call and the sergeant says, hey, hey, go, you, you know, get to the next one, get to the next one. And by the ninth call, you're just dealing with a jackass, but boom, you go off. And that's, that's where those deviations happen. And then afterwards, once you've blown off that steam, you all of a sudden realize, oh, man, man, I t- whoa, what did I do? That's what we have to start to learn to recognize. Because when you recognize those deviations and you have some biohacks for how to get back to normal, man, you can change your life. And when you're talking about triggers in, as it relates to these horrific things that we see, unfortunately, with law enforcement, and your book starts off right away in the prologue where you talk about that first smell of the burn on the grill, something so beautiful in, in terms of the family barbecue, but now that is something horrific based on your experiences. Can you talk a little bit about that and those triggers, how we need to understand those triggers? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that is so... And again, not to get too technical, but there's a portion of the emotional, what I would call the emotional brain, and I get it if you're a doctor or a neuroscientist out there. I am, I am making this kindergarten simple, so my apologies. And thank you. <laughs> yeah, especially for me. I need this. I need it simple. But so the amygdala, if you were to draw, if a laser was to go through your eyes and through your ears, where they intersected on both sides is these, these small amygdala. There's two of them. Um, the, the amygdala, is, it, it used to be called just a fear processing center, but really it's an emotional processing center. It's a, it's a leverage for how to remember things. Emotional memories are different than cognitive memories. You, you exert a lot of energy to draw cognition into the play. So the emotional brain wants to kind of take over a lot because it requires less energy. But it also means that your memories are going to be a little bit different. Emotional memories are more flashbulb-like. They're not overly detailed. But what the, what the emotional brain will do is leverage all of the information to try to remind you in the future that this is a bad thing. So like in my case, I used to love that initial burn off of the grill when you start the grill. But now you go to a call and you're, you're going through the house and you're clearing and someone mentions the fact, oh, they're cooking something. And you're, you're, you now know that, it's that, that it smells like that initial burn of the grill. But then you go outside and you find out that this person has killed his entire family and set them on fire. And this actually happened. Yeah. And then what you thought was that burn off of the grill is an entire family that is burning in the backyard. And it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific to see these things. It's, it's horrific to remember them. But what the emotional brain says is, this is horrible. So that smell, here's your reminder. Here, we don't like this. Remember, this is possibly dangerous. And, and there's two kinds of mistakes your brain can make. So the, the, the emotional brain is fast, very fast. It gives you hunches. They're fast, but they're not necessarily accurate. The cognitive brain is slower, but it's more accurate because you spend a little more time thinking about it. So the emotional brain is the fight or flight driver. If, if an emotion is spiked, it wants fight, flight, freeze, posture, submit. It, it wants to immediately get something going. So the mistakes the brain can make are you can hear a sound in the brush and you could ignore it and go, ah, oh, it's just the wind, and then you get eaten by a tiger. That is a cognitive error. You can also hear the brush. You, you hear something moving in the brush. You run away, look back, and go, oh, it was just the wind, and it turned out it was just the wind. The emotional brain says it's better to flee and not get eaten <laughs> than it is to sit there thinking about it and get you done. So your, your emotional brain is always leveraging everything, touch, feel, taste, uh, there's a story in the book I tell about a friend who got into a horrific accident where his uh, twin brother was killed. Yes. And his spike was a Beach Boys song, and he yeah. didn't even know it. 
He, he didn't even know it. It never occurred to him that that song was playing when the accident happened. But when he goes through some serious hypnotherapy and stuff and they recreate the thing, that's the song that's in his head. So his brain says, hey, Surfing USA, man, that's the problem. That, that is the problem. Be ready. Because last time, this went to hell. All right, with the about five minutes we have left in this segment, uh, there's a quote in this book. There's hundreds of quotes in this book that I love. And again, just the, Great read. the, the future of law enforcement is going to be significantly changed. I, I preach around the country to leave the world better than you found it. And Mike, I got to tell you that I, I'm just so thankful to you for what you've done. This quote, and I remember when I was brand new, there was a school, and I can't remember who put it on, but it talked about being a five percenter. And I, it occurred to me even back then as a new officer, I'm like, why is it only about being a five percenter. Why is it? Why aren't we talking about a hundred percent of the cops? Why are you not wanting to be the best that you could be if you've chosen to do this job? And you have a quote in there, and it says, "If we can take the five percent peak performers and make it ten percent, and so on, the job will be better for it. Society will be better for it, and hopefully, the community will be even more grateful than they have already shown to our profession." It's easy to think through social media that the perception of law enforcement. Is at an all-time low? You don't find that to be the case. We are constantly thanked for our service. We must constantly turn down people from buying our meals. And when one of our officers has fallen, the outpouring of emotion from the community is amazing to see. But why can't we make it even better by showing that we are on the cutting edge of making the most resourceful, calm, quiet, professional police force that we possibly can? And with the way that, that things are right now in the world, we're obviously in a Overall, in the public view, social media or, or national media, we are definitely in a down cycle. The world is becoming a lot more violent. Training needs to get better. So this, I think, really hits home for law enforcement officers out there and people who, who want to be cops. When you say we're on the cutting edge, what you've written in this book, what you've learned over the years, what you're trying to – and you train all around the world. Again, Mike's very humble that this guy travels the globe – teaching people how to be better cops and how to make the community better. So when you talk about the cutting edge, what, like, what is your motivation behind that? I guess it would be twofold. Uh, the first would be, obviously, the better we perform, the more we learn about the brain, the more we learn about biohacking the brain, the better the decisions are going to be made. Um, so it's one thing to commit yourself to this career and then you have, a, you have a choice that you immediately have to make when you get out of the academy here, especially in most jurisdictions. Um, you become a cop, and then, boom, a pluribus unum, you're a cop. And then the training is, you know, in Phoenix, we're lucky. We, we, we do a lot of training, mm -hmm. but it's always within the confines of, you know, you need butts in seats, you need people out there answering calls. Everything is limited by resources, by everything. So you, you've got two major issues for anyone. So the whole goal was... All right, it's one thing to survive a 20-year career and then come out of it. Uh, but if you do nothing in that 20-year career to learn about your emotional baseline or how to find your emotional baseline, then what is your retirement going to be like? Because here's the other dirty secret. The more you deviate from that baseline and the more time you spend away from it, the sicker you're going to get. We're going to sit in a... I don't want to sit in a rocking chair in a couple of years and just go, I'm done. I'm never going to do anything again because if I'm not using my mind, I'm going to waste my mind. If I'm not using my body, I'm going to waste my body. 
I want to enjoy my retirement. I don't want to feel like because I'm in my 50s that all of a sudden life is over. I want to feel like it's just beginning. I have a beautiful wife. I have a great family. I mean, why would I want to feel like it's, it's over, you know? Uh, I, want them, I want someone to come in and, and feel like we're, we're, tre- we're teaching the whole package, man. I want to teach you how to survive the, the violence. I want to teach you how to recover from the violence. And I want to teach you how to not be an ass. Don't be, don't be an ass to people. Don't be badge heavy. Don't be that way. The old beat cop mentality has to come back. That idea of draw me the lines, tell me what I'm responsible for, and I'm going to get to know those people, man. I'm going to work this area. I am responsible for what happens in this area. And then have a nice retirement where you go, you know what? I put in my time doing that, and now I don't know. I'm going to find something else to do. When you can't serve anymore, what's the point? You know? Yeah, but that's that's the whole purpose of the book. You're talking about the the serpent. It continues to go toward reward and away from the risk, and that's what you're you're passing on to. I didn't even think about the whole retirement thing, but again, the book it, it made me a lot better. It it gave me a lot of perspective on what I've been through the past 18 years. And again, you're sitting in the studio. Darren was a cop for a long time. He was. In a deadly force incident, he lost a child, which a lot of us can't even imagine. Uh, my beautiful producer, who... Have you cried yet today, Robin? You're getting me there, okay, Jason. That's, you didn't know this, Mike, but the goal every week is to make Robin cry, and we're not done with this episode yet, so we'll get there. Um, but Robin was the victim of a sexual assault a long time ago, and we, I, collectively, now we've been at this for three months, we're always re- moving toward the reward and away from the risk. So... Uh, I give you a lot of credit because I don't know if it was your intention. Uh, Bless you for what you're teaching law enforcement and how you're going to better the future of law enforcement. But this book is so powerful for all of us. It's so good. It's just life. Let's get them back next week. Can we get Mike back next week? Will you come back next week? Absolutely. All right, everybody. We are going to be right back with uh, a heroic headline that's uh, near and dear to my heart this week. And... um, I dare say you have to listen to one of Darren's stupid suspect stories again and never know what he's going to say. And then we'll give a quick close. And so we will be, uh, we, we will be uh, right never, back. We're never going to recover. Yeah, we ne- we're one. never going to recover. Mike, there, a couple weeks ago, Darren shared a story of a guy who sexually assaulted a cat. And then he told the cops that the cat was a whore. So, Insult and injury. Really. I, I, I have yet to recover from that, so I might read your book twice just to get over what the damage that Darren has caused me. Um, Mike, thank you. You know I love you, buddy. It's, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you in studio, and we will have you back next week. So, everybody, we will be back in just a minute for the next segment. Thank you. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the moment. moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association in this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. 
You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. That was a great guest. Oh I could listen. God. I can't I, wait for next week when I, he comes back because I, I have I, so many questions for him. I can't even tell you. We could do five or ten shows with Mike. I look forward to having him back next week. It's just uh, it's incredibly moving. I feel very blessed that I got to work around him for a very short time. And his partner, he mentioned a couple guys, and, and he, he wasn't just being biased. When he talked about John White and Mike Yatsko, it is well known around the department. These, are, these two guys are some of the best police officers that Phoenix ever was blessed to, to have in their midst. So, well, you um, know, I got, I got to interject here because this has just been like the coolest day in here because my studio is half full of police officers right? i make come yeah we have on. an audience today we've never had that and it's this been pretty really exciting cool. a lot of uh, a lot of dear friends so uh, and they haven't heckled us yet so we're doing uh, we're doing halfway good um i love a guy in uniform so any day. this week <laughs> this week's heroic headline story and i have to always tell people every week it's going to be something different last week it was a cop who made a nine-year-old kid's birthday party something better it's not always about saving life, but we talked at the end of the last segment about uh, being in a little bit of a down cycle in law enforcement, and something struck me this week. I am, I am incredibly moved by, well, nothing moves me like music. I will tell you that driving into the studio today, knowing who I was talking to, knowing the topic, I specifically listened to Two songs. One was the Warrior song, which is a hardcore military song that will make you, if you listen to it, it'll make you want to run through a brick wall and just fight anything. And then I listened to The Rising by Bruce Springsteen, which talks about the firefighters that went up the towers as they were coming down. And it was basically God saying, come on up for The Rising, put your hands in mine. And it's, ooh, those are the two songs I needed to hear today, knowing the emotions that I was facing. Well, I found out uh, some yesterday... My favorite singer, and I'm very proud to say this, uh, since I was eight years old in 1980, is George Strait. And George Strait's music has done a lot for me in all my formative years in high school. And uh, at the time of my accident, when I was freshly out of a coma, I'm completely blind. I had his, back when we had box sets and not, not iPods, uh, I had his box set on continual play. And... I got to meet George Strait a couple years ago, and a true highlight of my life to stand there and, and wow. I mean, one of those, when you, you meet somebody, it's like pretty wild. But it was during his retirement tour, and I was kind of sad. Like, he's done. He's retired. He's not going to go on tour anymore. He's not going to release music. Well, guess what? I just found out that George Strait is releasing a new album, and the first song off of that album is called The Weight of the Badge. And along with his son, whose nickname is Bubba, and one of my all-time favorite songwriters, Dean Dillon, who has written some amazing songs over the years, a lot for George Strait. But this song, and you can find it on YouTube, read the lyrics, for somebody with his talent, his voice, his heart, and his influence around this world, how many people love him, for him to openly support law enforcement and to sing this song really warmed my heart and he is our hero of the week because we need that right now more than anything and 
he did it for us. So uh, thank you to George Strait. Thank you for releasing a new album. I can't wait. Um, but in the world of law enforcement, way to the badge. Listen to it. It means something. It's awesome. And now uh, with that and now my heart being full, I will turn it over to Darren so that he can absolutely ruin the rest of my day. Yeah, I love the best of humanity. You know, Jason gives us the best humanity. I'm going to take us to the bowels of humanity. Uh, this is from Maryland. I have two uh, really bad, stupid suspect stories. Both have to do with a surveillance uh, component. So after the show, go ahead and go to YouTube and check these out. First one's from Maryland. The police are searching for a man they dubbed the bad look bandit. The suspect was seen on surveillance breaking into a restaurant with a brick. Eh, not unusual. They, they do that. He shatters the store's front window. He walks in, and then he uses the same brick to break the front counter window. What he doesn't understand is that this front counter window is bulletproof glass. The brick bounces off, nails him in the head, just <laughs> nails him. He goes down like a ton of bricks, and he's out for the count. Uh, he, the video that was a bad pun. Thank you. <laughs> that was a really bad pun. I thought it was funny. He hit himself Thank with you. a brick and went down like, like a ton of bricks. Ton of bricks. Yep. killing me. Yep, yep. Hey, at least I'm not meowing on this one. <laughs> so if you want to go to that uh, video, you can look at it at Bad Luck Bandit smacks himself in the head with a brick during burglary. So that's the first one. Second Don't. one. Instant karma is a pleasure to watch. I it would is. encourage you it to is. watch that video. I, I love yes. karma. Uh, the next one would be this would-be uh, suspect is caught within seconds of trying to steal a bicycle. A surveillance video shared on Facebook viewed more than 360,000 times shows a man with bolt cutters fidgeting with this bike chain right outside this bicycle rack uh, in the city building of Gladstone, Oregon. The suspect, a Adam Vale, 26 years old, really stupid. He was wearing a mask, and he's caught within seconds. And why? Because there's almost like never a cop when you need one. Unless the bike rack is in front of a police station. That's right. This idiot's trying to steal bikes right outside a police station. He's caught within seconds. And again, this is the Gladstone Police Station. You can look for that idiot uh, as well. And those are my two stupid suspect stories. And right. no cats right. were injured yes. in the telling of those two and stories. No, and no vacuum cleaners. No, no <laughs> vacuum cleaners were, or were, cats. Were put on any genitalia. That you hit us with, and uh, if you're listening, you take a look at yeah, our previous go, shows. Go back take to a look. The shows, yes, I'm this you, is real. It's all worth it. And well, at least you made it easy this week, and it is easy to uh, move on to the closing segment. And my favorite go. part, um, mine too. And this comes from today's guest. I was inspired. Uh, I thought about a lot. I've known about Mike Malfast coming to be our guest, and he'll be back next week. But I think this is important for all of us to, uh, you know, vulnerability, swallowing your pride. Sometimes that's the hardest part about when you're trying to recover from something, whether it be mental, emotional, physical. Uh, sometimes you're just reduced to, to nothing and you, you're, you're not sure how to, to go about it. And Mike mentioned that he was a fighter in his past life. He might fight still. And again, he was humble, but I can tell you he was pretty good at it not long after i got out of the hospital pretty soon as a matter of fact and i am i can't even begin to tell you what a mess i was sick frail scared had not much to look forward to no way of knowing how i was going to get through what i was going through and i can't even remember who it was might have been my friend shane but it started to be a, a big talked up thing mike was having a fight and his wife sewed my serial number onto his shorts. And on the day of the fight, all of a sudden, nothing else mattered to me. My, 
Mike was going to fight that night, and I cared about his safety. I cared about uh, the whole meaning around it. And back then, it wasn't on cable. It wasn't on you know ESPN or anything. Right. And I think one of my friends was there, and he's on the phone with me giving the play-by-play. And, uh, and, of course, Mike absolutely kicked the shit out of this guy and knocked his tooth out. It, it, I don't even think it went more than one round. But I spent the entire day only thinking about him, only thinking about what it meant. And then when the fight was over, I realized how good I felt. And what I've always taken from that, what I remember, when you are reduced to nothing, when you're going through whatever you're going through, when you're having days where you just don't really have any fight in you, let somebody else fight for you. And it is amazing how good it feels. I will never forget that. And I am extremely happy that I got through that without crying. Robin, did you? No, and you yes. know better than that. Okay, good. Anyway, seriously, it's, it's okay. Let somebody else pick up the slack once in a while, no matter who it is. And your friends, uh, people who love and support you, they, they'll be there for you in, in ways that I don't even think Mike would know after all these years what it means to me. Let somebody else fight for you sometimes. It'll do a world of good. Thank you all so much. I can't wait until next week because Mike is going to be back in studio. I've got a lot of things to talk to him about. God bless all of you, and we will see you next week. Thanks, Darren. Robin, I Thank love you. you. All right, back at you. See you later. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Badge Boys.